Well, well, well. What's up, Mosaic? Guys doing all right? Good. It's so, so good to be gathered up with all of you uh, this evening. Uh, for those of you that are here with us in this space, great to have you here. Uh, for those joining us online, it's fantastic to gather up. Uh, whether we are gathering up in living rooms uh, or whether we are gathering up here in this place, the point is that we gather up so that we would be stirred up and spurred on toward love and good deeds, so that we would live out our lives in a manner that would demonstrate what we have been redeemed into, uh, that we are now participants with God in the extraordinary redemptive story that he is writing. So uh, we are in the book of Ephesians, a letter that Paul uh, wrote to the churches surrounding the church in Ephesus, the churches that had been impacted and influenced by the church in Ephesus. And he is sort of unpacking for them a letter that will allow them to know what it looks like to live our lives as followers of Jesus in the world in which we live. So he's kind of telling them, guys, here's what it means that we're a follower of Jesus. Here's what that's going to look like. Uh, Here's how you and I can live that out. We have been traveling uh, through this letter and have covered some extraordinary ground. And as we enter into the next section, really the rest of the book, uh, for the most part, uh, with a few exceptions, we are going to get into a space now where Paul is going to get super practical. He's really just going to talk through a lot of practicalities. Uh, Here's what you should do. Here's what you shouldn't do. Here's how you should do this. Here's how you shouldn't do that. Here's what it should look like in these relationships. Here's what it should look like in these relationships. So there's just going to be a lot of do's and don'ts, a lot of practicalities. And if we are not careful, we are going to be tempted, like all of humanity often is, uh, to, be, to be gravitating toward the list, toward the to-do list, to have boxes and to check those boxes because it gives us some sense of um, importance that we know what the rules are and that we follow those rules and check those boxes so that we are good followers of Jesus and that God can be proud of us, right? I mean, this is where we go because it puts some control in our hands. You give me the rules. Some of us follow them. Some of us don't. Good people, bad people. But that is not in any way Paul's intent or the intent of the Holy Spirit uh, to to, to drive us into a version of self-righteousness. In fact, what Paul is really just doing is saying, look guys, considering what we have come to understand through God's redemptive work, this seems the only logical response as we now participate with God in redemption. So what have we come to understand? In brevity, here's what we've come to understand just out of the book of Ephesians, let alone the rest of Scripture, right? Paul began in chapters 1 and chapters 2, unpacking the glorious reality of all that God has done for us. The gospel itself, the, uh, the, the thing that we are recipients of as followers of Jesus, his great redemptive work for us. Chapter 1, unbelievable, look what he's done for you. Chapter 2, uh, man, our, uh, our souls are made alive and rescued, our futures redeemed, our purpose restored. And then into the rest of chapter 2, we are reconciled to God as a humanity and reconciled to each other. And then as he enters into chapter three, 
Remember that Paul in chapter 3 revealed to the church he was writing to a mystery of the gospel that the Jewish people had been unaware of. He said, look, the gospel's fantastic. We have a savior. He's come to rescue us. But there's a mystery to the gospel that only now is coming to light. And here's the mystery, that God did not come to rescue one people group from all the other people groups, the Jewish people from the Gentiles. He came to rescue all people groups from sin and death so that they can be reconciled to God, right? So in reconciling all people groups to himself, he is also reconciling those people groups to one another. So where the Jews and the Gentiles had a hatred toward one another, one feeling judged, one needing to protect from the horror of the pagan world, God is saying now, Man, the grand mystery of the gospel that none of us could have imagined is that these two parties are brought together. So, in conclusion, one of the ways that God is going to show his manifold wisdom and his glorious redemption to all of the leaders and all of the people of the world and all of the spiritual powers that be the cosmos itself is by showing his manifold wisdom through the church. We, the people of Jesus, the church, in our unity with one another, because of our reconciliation to God, are now going to be the very display of God's wisdom and redemption to the world. That's pretty awesome. So what are you and I invited into, called into, in this grand adventure that is the redemptive story of God? That as we live our lives in unity with one another, considering that we are all under one Lord, Jesus, we show the world the capacity and capability of the redemptive power of God to redeem mankind to himself and to each other. Okay, you with me so far? Very important. I know you've heard all this before, but we cannot disconnect what we're about to walk into from this because otherwise we will uh, create a version of self-righteousness. It is no wonder then that in chapter 4, Paul then goes, okay, since all this is true, it makes sense that we ought to fight for what? For unity. We ought to fight for unity because it is in our unity that the world will know we follow Jesus and that the world will know his manifold wisdom. Isn't that what Jesus said? They will know you by your extraordinary ability to behave yourselves. Do you remember that verse? Nor do I because it's not in the Bible. He said they will know you by your love for each other. Not just like a fluffy love, a deep unifying, beautiful respect that we have for each other because we recognize who we are in Christ. Okay, so Paul says, since that's the reality, fight for unity. In fact, fight for unity ahead of fighting for your rights. Fight for unity ahead of fighting for being right. Fight for unity ahead of all of that. Fight for unity first. And then once we are unified, certainly let's talk about who has what rights and who's right and who's wrong. But we fight not to be right or to have rights. We fight for unity. And then in chapter 4, he went through it. You fight for unity. You have a blueprint for it. There is one God, one church, one spirit, one Lord, one, 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 one. We have every reason to be one. And then he said, and this Lord you follow, Jesus, he descended to redeem us. Then he ascended to secure victory for us. 
So the victory that we have that is revealed in Revelation when John turns and says, I saw a great multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation as one worshiping God, this beautiful reality that is coming, it is secured for us. It is not God's hope for the future. It is God's declaration of the future. It is done. So we have every reason to press into it because we will realize it. And then Paul said last week when we gathered up, okay, considering all of this, remember this. We need to put on a new life. We need to live in the life that we have now come to understand as ours in Christ. We need to not live as the Gentiles live, the pagans lived as we all once did, but we need to live now as Jesus has shown us how to live. Because in living like Jesus, We express the character and nature of God. We are the image bearers we were created to be. And we demonstrate the manifold wisdom of God and his powerful redemption as we live out the way of Jesus instead of the way of the world. And now Paul's going to get practical. He's going to go, okay, you want to know where we start? You want to know where it's, you you leave leave here. You want to know where to start? Paul, how do I start living the way of God instead of the way of the world? Well, great question. Let's open our Bibles and go and take a look. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. So if you have a Bible, turn there. If a smart device, Ephesians 4, 25. If you're watching online, uh, grab a Bible, grab a smart device. uh, Join us in the reading and jump into Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. So we've just come out of that space that started in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. That's the context in which we're in. Don't live like the world does, okay? But live like Jesus, starting in verse 25. Here's what he has to say. I'm so excited. What is it, God, that you're telling us to do? Fighting for unity. How's it gonna play out? Here it is. Therefore, Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another, okay? Put away lying and be truthful. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. So let's not be angry uh, and get mad and certainly let's not let uh, our madness go further than one day. Let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with everyone in need. So definitely don't steal from people around you, but work hard and give back. Okay, so there it is. My goodness, it's incredible. What a start. What a start. Fight for unity because unity matters more than anything else because it's the way that God demonstrates the mystery of the gospel and his manifold wisdom to the world and, and, and fight for it out there. So here's how you do it, folks. Ready? Uh, do not lie. Stop lying. Uh, do not be mad. Stop being mad. And if you are mad, make sure it doesn't last more than a day. And, and don't steal stuff. I, I, I feel a bit of a letdown. Honestly, I'm like, really? Like, Paul, that's what you got for me? Like, fight for unity. Man, this is good. Don't lie. Don't steal, don't be mad. I'm like, it, it, it feels infantile. It feels, obviously we don't do those things, Paul. Give me something that has a little bit more connection to the realities of our unifying fight, that we would fight for the unity of the saints under Christ. Don't just give me a quick little list of the big boys. Don't lie, don't steal, don't be mad. 
But that's only because typically I read the Bible like a Gentile reads the Bible. Do you know why that is? Because I am a Gentile, right? I don't have the luxury of having memorized the majority of the Old Testament. I don't have the luxury of understanding all of the dynamics and beauty that comes out of the Old Testament in my head. That's just not the culture I grew up in, and it's not the culture you grew up in. We have movie scenes. That's what we have. Uh, The Jewish people had the Old Testament, and we have movie scenes, right? So uh, throw me a quote from a a movie. Uh, Quickly, go. Quote. Oh, my goodness. A spoonful of sugar. There it is. What movie is that from? Mary Poppins, what's the context of that? That's right, she's trying to give the kids medicine, but what do they, they don't want the medicine. So she sings them a little song about the beauty of uh, the realities of medicine, and then that plays out into all sorts of wonderful, magical things that occur. So you all know the context of that, right? You see, I throw one line out, and that line, if somebody had not ever seen Mary Poppins or knew nothing of Mary Poppins, and I said, a spoonful of sugar, what would they think? Spoon, sugar, that's an odd thing to say, Renault. No, 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 a spoonful of sugar. Still, still not with you. <laughs> sugar, spoon. But if you know Mary Poppins, the second I say that, what happens? <gasps> I love that song. And suddenly the entire context of what it means that she says a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. You're like, oh, it has deeper meaning. Do you see that? Very often, In the New Testament, the authors of the New Testament would write, when they're trying to make a particular point, they would write a particular sequence or word things a particular way so that it tied to a quote in the Old Testament that had a context so that immediately the people reading this particular passage who knew the Old Testament would go, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is sounding super familiar. This is out of that Old Testament passage. And immediately in their heads, they would go, he's not saying a spoonful of sugar. He's talking about the principle of something that makes something hard go down easier. And you're like, are you making that up? No, 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 no. You have to understand when he says a spoonful of sugar, he means Mary Poppins. And Mary Poppins means... And this particular passage is one of those. There is a hidden Mickey in this passage, if you will, a, a portal that takes us into a world that gives us a context, and that context changes the entirety of what Paul is trying to say here and moves it from three simple things, don't steal, don't lie, and and don't be mad, to a deep and beautiful display of how we are to fight for unity as we walk into the realities of being participants with redemption. What am I talking about? Well, if you were Jewish and you were sitting in uh, and around the region of Ephesus and someone was reading this letter from Paul for the first time, as it began, you might be sitting next to your Jewish friend and as he says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth to his neighbor for we are members of one body. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. As soon as they got to the part about the sun going down on anger, you'd go like this. It's a portal. He's talking about Psalm 4. Psalm what? 
Psalm 4. He's in Psalm. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And what was the context of Psalm 4? Oh, yeah, I remember that too. And so maybe one of those Jewish people might raise their hand and say, excuse me, reader, excuse me. Would you mind reading Psalm 4 for all the Gentiles in the room? Because they have no idea what Paul's actually saying. They think he's just saying, don't steal, don't lie, and, and don't be angry. But that's not what he's saying. Can we go to Psalm 4 and do that? And then they would go, oh, okay, so since most of us are Gentiles here, and most of us have not memorized the Old Testament, I think maybe we should go to Psalm 4. What do you think? So we pop back to Psalm 4, and let's go see what is unfolding in Psalm 4 that Paul is referring to here and how the context of Psalm 4 helps us understand what Paul is actually trying to tell us. And when we see it, it deepens this passage to an extraordinary place that gives us our first beautiful space in which we can fight for unity. So Psalm chapter 4, turn there if you're online with us, turn there if you're in the room with us. Psalm chapter 4 verse 1, what is the context of this psalm? Here it is. Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. So when a, a psalm begins with David crying out to God and he says something like, I was in distress in the past and you saved me then, please hear me now. What do you think the context of Paul's prayer is? That he is in prosperity and wonder or in distress and a bit of pain? Distress and pain, that's right. You don't go to God and be like, God, hear me, please. Be my righteousness. You've helped me in the past. Please come to my aid now. You immediately go, oh, the, there's distress going on. So the context of this psalm is that David and the people that he leads, the people of Israel, are in distress. Look what he says next. O oh, men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself? The Lord hears when I call to him. So Paul, I mean, uh, David here enters into a strange space. He cries out to God first, reminding us or showing us all that there is distress in the land. And then he turns to the people. And what does he say? Man, how long will you all bring shame to me by choosing vain words and falsehoods? Is David talking about just the standard old lying? How long are you all going to lie? No, because standard lying doesn't necessarily bring shame to somebody else. What brings shame to somebody else is when I go to a particular person or a group of people and I slander somebody else. Slandering, the word slander literally in the dictionary is, to, is defamation, spreading rumors, malicious words, inflammatory statements or reports, defaming somebody, falsely accusing somebody. You with me so far? So what David says is, we are in distress. I get it. But man, really? Like you all, people of Israel, your big response is to point fingers at me and go, what are you doing about it? This stupid king doesn't know what he's doing. It's crazy. You gather up in your little circles and you're like, can you, did you hear? I heard that he doesn't care about this and doesn't think about that. And you know what? Thinking about the king, anybody that's for the king is against us. 
And so he's saying, how long, O Israel, will you all gather up in your little tribes with your little neighbors and, and bring shame to God's anointed? Now, it's interesting. He talks about God's anointed, which is a fascinating piece of this puzzle. And it becomes very important in what Paul is laying out also. Because in the Old Testament, the way the anointed of God worked is this, that everybody that knew God didn't have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit did not fill every person that followed God. That only happens after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and after Pentecost. So we live in a a time of, of history where if you know Jesus... You are a recipient of the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, because he empowers us as a collective, the church. But in the time before Jesus, God would let his Holy Spirit come upon one person, and that person would be anointed to lead the people of God. And David was the anointed king, and he had the Holy Spirit. That's why David will often write and say, please don't take your spirit from me, which is not something God will do from us But he would do it then. He would move from one anointed person to another when they were no longer the anointed. So what David is saying here is this. Man, the second we're in distress, you all choose vain words and falsehoods about me and falsehoods about what God is doing. And just so you know, you're doing that against the anointed of God. And you can go ahead and do that, but God still hears my voice. Because God is going to be for his anointed, and God is going to defend his anointed. So you want to speak all up against the anointed, fine. But understand that that's not going to change how God feels about me. And honestly, I just caution you, bad positioning. And then look what he says. Very interesting. But, do, uh, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Does that sound familiar? What did we read Paul when he wrote? He said, stop choosing falsehood and lies. When you go to your neighbor, tell them the truth, please. And don't be angry and let the sun go down on your anger. Now, this is interesting because David's take here is slightly different, right? He goes from this positioning of somebody being upset and choosing vain words and falsehoods with their neighbor about the person they're upset with. And he says, man, that's not a good idea. And then the next move is, when you feel angry towards somebody, there is a response you ought to have that is not what you all are doing. So anger typically comes in two forms, and David is speaking to both here. You can see it. The one form is the actual people that are choosing to, to, to slander David, he's saying to them, man, this is a bad use of your anger. When you're mad at me or mad at the circumstances or mad at the world, you turning your anger toward me and bringing shame to me is not the, the way of God. So when you are angry at somebody, oftentimes we are angry because somebody is doing something that is affecting our well-being. You go, what, what, what do you mean? Well, we, we live very much in that world today, don't we? All of you in this room, you have an idea of what will affect your well-being, right? And anyone out there that has an idea that opposes what you think will bring you well-being, they're, gonna, they're making you mad already because they're crazy. They are, they are robbing you of your future. 
So we see it in very specific circumstances, right? Now, right now, we've got two political parties that are about to spend a billion plus dollars to tell us that the other person sucks. I mean, I'm just like, wow, this is going to be fun, right? But here's what we're going to do. This is how we're going to roll. We're going to pick one of them that kind of stands alongside what we think will bring about well-being in the future. And we are going to spend our time gathered up with our tribe, our neighbor, the other people that agree with us. And we are going to say things like, anybody who supports that is stupid. Right? So... If one of the particular leadership structures is going to help us be safer against the coronavirus by wearing masks until we're old and dead, there's going to be a portion of us that I'm like, yes, they're going to save us from the coronavirus. But if the other guy gets in, they're going to pull the mask off and we're all going to die. Or the economy, that one's going to be fun. If they get in, then the economy is going to soar and we're all going to be rich forever. But if they get in, we're going to be poor and die. Or maybe it's a racial reconciliation. If they get in, they're going to damage the entire world and we will never be reconciled. But if they get in, then we will be reconciled and happy forever. And, and the reason that that happens is because we, a people, begin to put our hope, our trust, in some kind of circumstantial outcome or some kind of leadership from someone that is going to save the day. If our economy stabilizes, then we're going to be okay. If, our, if the virus is handled properly, then we're going to be okay. If, if, if the realities of racial uh, turmoil is handled well, then we're going to be okay. And if those things don't happen, then we're not going to be okay. But, but the reality is that's not what makes us okay or what doesn't make us okay, but it's how it feels. And so because we feel that way, when somebody opposes our particular idea of what's going to make us okay, what do we feel? We feel mad. Because my well-being is dependent on what I know is going to make us okay, and you don't think so. And so I'm going to call you stupid. The other thing that makes us mad is this, when we get called stupid, right? Let's just be honest, right? I mean, how many of you love online when you have a particular viewpoint, for example, about something, and you see somebody post online, anybody who thinks this is stupid, do you go, oh, thank you. My gosh, I just, I love the way that you... Like, consider me and my feelings. No, we don't. We, if we send a thumbs up, it's sarcasm. Pfft. Whatever. Heart, heart. I hate you. Right? Because it doesn't feel good when somebody slanders against you. And it doesn't feel good when somebody's doing something that's going to affect your well-being. And so you slander them. You see what David's saying here? When distress is our context... Our typical, the way of the world, our typical human way is first, wherever our well-being is uh, affected, slander them. Second, when we get slandered, slander them back. I just watched a little video yesterday. Uh, J.P. Sears, who is a satirist, uh, a satirist and a comedian, he, he does a bunch of funny stuff about real-life things that we deal with. And, and I just watched a video yesterday where he was doing a whole thing on the cancel culture. He loved the cancel culture now. And then it also, I, I don't like what you're saying. Blink, you're canceled. And so the way he did it in the video is he was standing at his door and the doorbell rang and he walked up to the door and the, he opened the door and his neighbor was there. And the guy goes, hey, I, I, I'm your neighbor and, and I, was, I was on Twitter and I saw in 2008 that you tweeted such and such and I just want you to know I'm canceling you. And so he, he had his phone and he's like, well, 
in 2013, I see that you said this, I'm canceling you. Well, and, and, and this whole video goes back and forth. And at one point, my favorite was, he's like, oh, I see in 2008, you threw away a plastic bottle. Do you not care about recycling? I'm canceling you. And I was watching this video and I'm like, this is how it's rolling right now. You so much as blink and there's an entire crowd of people that gathered up to tell you how stupid you are. And then when they tell you how stupid you are, your response and mine is to tell them louder how stupid they are. See, this is what Paul's saying. This is what David is saying. Listen, I know you're going to get angry. In distress, it's easy. But when you do, don't react like the rest of the world does. Slow down. Take a good night's sleep. Ponder what it is that's making you feel so crazy before you go ahead and type a response. Be silent for a little bit. You see, we often think of what Paul said in his passage as this idea that says when you get angry or you're angry with somebody, uh, and you'll find this for those of you that will find yourselves in relationships at some point that end up in marriages and, and you're living together and, and you might have a marriage counselor tell you, you know, don't ever let the sun set on your anger. And, and you will take that as the idea that with a friend or a spouse or whatever, if you're mad at them, you've got until sunset to fix it. And beyond sunset, you're just in sin. That is not what Paul is saying, nor is it what David's saying. In fact, it's very different. They're saying... There's two things you shouldn't do with anger. One, you shouldn't react immediately. How many times reacting immediately in an emotionally angry space has that gone well for you? Yeah, about as many times as it's gone well for me. But how many times has it gone well when in 2 a.m. and you're both exhausted, you're trying to work through the final bits of what made you angry because the sun is kind of setting and you got to get it done? That doesn't go well either. What Paul is saying is, you don't want to react to anger, but you also don't want to bury it. You don't want to pretend it's not there. You don't want to ignore it. What you want to do, David says, is when you feel angry, that very day, start the process of asking God to begin to work on your heart. Ponder why you feel so angry. Be silent and think. As you pray that night, prepare your heart. And maybe the next day or the day after that or the day after that, when you've pondered for a while and you've been silent for a while and you have stopped just reacting, maybe then you go to that person and say, hey, man, I appreciate you and you're awesome, but I was a, I was a little angry a couple days ago. Can we talk this through? This is the way of God, not the way of the world. And then look what, look what David says next. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. So David's sequence is, don't choose falsehood about other people, but be honest and truthful with your neighbor. Don't, don't be angry and react and don't bury your anger and ignore it. Ponder it and think about it through the night and then deal with it properly in a gospel honoring manner. And when you are in distress, don't hoard what is yours to be in, in, in a space of self-preservation, but bring your sacrifices to God and trust Him. See, what David's saying is that typically us humans, when we're in distress, our immediate space is, I need to be okay, so I'm going to take from whatever and whomever I can. I don't want to lose my job, so I'm going to navigate and resume and do all my stuff. I, don't, I, I need to save my, my, my resources and, and save myself. And he's like, stop, stop, don't do that. That's the way of the world again. In fact, do the exact opposite. Come and bring what you have to God and say, God, you use it and do what you want with it. And then 
David says. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Like, where is God? Where is our king? Where are the people that are going to save us? Who's going to show us some good? And then David responds, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. It's like he's saying, when people are, are, are asking, where is God? God, you show him. You come and show up. You bring us safety. Because look, that's literally what he says next. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Here's what he's saying. You all think, I think, that the right set of circumstances will bring you peace, that the right set of circumstances will bring you safety, that the right set of circumstances will bring you well-being, that the right set of circumstances, the right politicians, the right leaders, the, 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 the right economy, the right whatever is gonna make your life okay. Let me tell you something. When you understand what God has done for you and what he's doing for you, the joy and the peace that is found in that transcends circumstance, and it is greater than anything any circumstance will ever bring you. Do you know why? Because the older you get, the more you'll realize that when you are in the best of circumstances, they are at best fleeting. You will have to be anxious the rest of your life because just when you have it, you have to understand that you can lose it. But what God has done for us we cannot lose because he is the one that gave it and he is the one that holds it. So David says, the joy I have from you exceeds any joy I will ever get from the right set of circumstances. And then he says this, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Isn't that beautiful? We will always respond toward other humans with slander, with anger, and with a self-preservation attitude when we think our well-being is tied to some circumstance. But when we recognize that our well-being is found in God, then we are free to be able to respect and honor and care for each other even when we disagree. Now, let's go back to Ephesians. Gentiles, now that you know the context of the secret portal that Paul just created for us, let's read it again. And this time, watch what happens. Verse 25 of Ephesians chapter four. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of us speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Do you see now why he said we are members of one another? When you speak to your little tribe that agrees with you, be sure not to speak falsely of the other tribes, of the other people that disagree with you. Be sure not to do that. Why? Because if they are part of the people that follow Jesus, then you belong to them and they belong to you. See, it's Paul's way of saying this. When you speak with slander against somebody else that follows Jesus, you understand you are speaking against God's anointed. Because who's God's anointed now? Is it King David? Is it me, Renaud the Great? Here I am, I'm the anointed one. Don't speak against me, but you all can speak against each other all day long. No, no, who has the Holy Spirit? Anyone in this room that follows Jesus has the Holy Spirit, which means now the body of Christ is the anointed one, which means that when you and I speak with slander against each other, we are speaking against the church and that is not a good idea. And so Paul says, man, stop with your neighbor. Speak the truth about the people you're talking about. And then he says this, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Remember what he means? That by the first night, begin to ponder how you're going to resolve this without sinning. And look what he says. 
I love this. And give no opportunity to the devil. The, the word devil, which is the name given to the enemy of God, it's interesting. Um, it is uh, diabolos, which is the Greek word. The, the Greek word diabolos, which is what they call Satan or the devil, was actually a word in Greek before they gave it as the name of Satan. They didn't create that word for Satan. They borrowed a Greek word and gave it to him. Do you know what diabolos means in Greek? Forget Satan. It means slanderer. So if you were slandering somebody, falsely accusing somebody, defaming somebody, spreading rumors about someone, maliciously talking about someone, inflammatory statements or reports about someone, um, then you would be called a slanderer. You would be called a diabolos. And so when the authors of the New Testament wanted to come up with a name for Satan, they're like, he's a slanderer is what he is. So when you and I slander each other, and then when you and I act out in our anger, instead of pondering it and responding well, then we give Diabolos what he wants. When we fight against each other, we fight for our enemy. And when we fight for each other, we fight against our enemy. So when we fight against each other, as the church, as the people of God, then he should say of us, well done, good and faithful servants. Is that what we want? So Paul says, man, you want to be unified? This is not the way. And then he says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This isn't about thievery. It's about a mindset. Stop being a taker and bring what you have to the kingdom. Bring what you have to the community. And say, whatever I have, I bring to God as my sacrifice to participate with the community in making Jesus known. So here's what Paul's actually saying. We need to fight for unity. And if you're going to fight for unity, here's how it goes. When you're talking to one group of people, do not talk falsely about another group of people. Don't slander them. Stop it. And when you are angry with someone, either because they have slandered you or because they are affecting you negatively... Ponder it for a night before you start slandering them or being vengeful toward them and deal with it in a manner worthy of the gospel to fight for unity. And if you are in this to take, to steal, stop it. Take what you have, work at something, develop your gifting, work hard, gain resources, and bring them to the community. Can you imagine what a community will look like if whenever we are with one group of people, we speak highly of the other groups, even if we disagree with them. And what a community would look like if when we are angry because we have angered each other, we ponder for the night before we type for the day and we go deal with each other face to face in grace and in respect. Can you imagine what a community would look like if we stopped taking and we all started giving? This is the beginning of the journey into fighting for unity. And the only way we're ever going to do it, folks, is if we keep our heads on this fact that our well-being, our safety, our future is not in the hands of a circumstance or in the hands of a politician or in the hands of a leader or in the hands of an economy. It is in the hands of God. And he is already enough. And he already keeps us safe. So out of that we can love one another instead of slandering and hating one another. This is what the community of God does. Let's pray. God, thank you for your extraordinary love for us.
and the amazing way in which you constantly lead us into a place where we respond to what you've already done for us, where we don't have to prove anything to you by behaving rightly, but where we can come and say, because of who you are and because of what you've done for us and because of who we are in you now, we get to live freely and we get to love freely as we unconditionally care for one another so that we can be participants in displaying the unity that you have affected by reconciling us to you and then reconciling us to one another. So I pray, God, that in this community, in the community we call Mosaic, that we would be a people that would be careful when we are with our neighbors, our little tribe, our people that agree with us, not to talk down about others, not to talk falsely about them. Have you heard? Can you believe? But to honor them, even if we disagree with them. And may we be a community that when we are hurt and when we are angered because we have been slandered against or because somebody is behaving in a way that we think will negatively affect our well-being, that we would have the respect and the trust in you to go and ponder for the night before we type and to come with an attitude of grace because we have set our minds on you again. And may we bring what we have to you and to the community instead of taking from you and from the community what we think we need. And in in, in doing all that, would you remind us every day that you are enough, that you are enough, and that you are safety, and that you are well-being, and that we are well because of you, not well because of a circumstance, so that we will feel our sense of stability, not in the greatness of our circumstances, but in the joy we find in remembering who you are, what you've done for us, and who we are in you. Bind us together with cords that will never be broken so that we will fight against Diabolos instead of for him. Empower us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.